A very, very warm welcome to everybody. Uh, on behalf of the Christians in Parliament All-Party Group, Bible Society, the RSPB and Arosha, who are the hosts of this evening's event. My name is Mark Harris. I'm the Parliamentary Officer for the Christians in Parliament All-Party Group and for Bible Society. And this event forms one of a, a regular series of event, events that we hold on a whole range of different policy areas on a cross-party basis and for both houses. And we're delighted tonight to have such a distinguished group of panellists to discuss this critical issue of the economics of environmental spending. And it, it comes as a at a particularly topical moment given the IPCC fifth assessment report that was launched at the weekend. If you are a tweeter, the hashtag for the event is hashtag planet. We're also very grateful to Caroline Spellman for agreeing to chair this evening's discussion. She has a great deal of experience in this area. She, um, she was Secretary of State for, for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs from 2010 to 2012. And I'm going to hand over to Caroline now to introduce the panellists and to outline the structure of the evening. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you very much, Mark, and thank you to the hospitality from uh, Christians in Parliament. And I, I, I'm sure, like me, you've been really looking forward to this event. I have to say also, with, with just a little bit of trepidation on my side, because you will observe that there is quite a range of opinion uh, um, seated around me. Uh, but I heard a very wise piece of advice from a friend about mediation in conflict, which is, you should always walk towards conflict and not retreat away from it. So I'm hoping tonight that our panellists might walk towards each other with perhaps their slightly different perspectives. And what we bring out of it is um, something better than any of us could individually produce. That's my aspiration for this evening. So in that endeavour, we're going to start with all the members of the panel speaking. I've asked them to try and keep strictly to time because I want to make sure we've got plenty of time for your questions. So that's advance notice to you that we will take questions so we don't want that awkward silence when we get to Q&A. You've got about 40, 50 minutes to think about what you might want to ask. Um, so first of all, I'm going to just introduce the panel members to you. Some will be very well known to you. Undoubtedly, Lord Lawson, uh, former Chancellor, 1983 to 1989, and he served as also Secretary of State for Energy from 1981 to 1983. And Nigel has been a very significant figure in this debate. He has written a number of books, but perhaps you're aware of his book, An Appeal to Reason, A Cool Look at Global Warming, and you probably know that he's chairman of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which he launched in 2009. And I think also, uh, it's, it would be right for me to say that we haven't quite got Lord Lawson's title right here because he's actually right honourable Lord Lawson and I know how important that is because I think sometimes members of the public think that right honourable falls from the trees as a designation. Actually it means you're a Privy Councillor and it's an honour to be invited to be right honourable so I'd like you to know that he is. So, Thank you very much. <laughs> coming on to our, uh, my next panellist on the right is Professor Michael Jacobs who very very kindly has agreed to speak because Lord Stern can't be here tonight. We did try and let everybody know that would be the case. He is the visiting professor at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment and at the School of Public Policy at University College London. He's also written extensively on environmental economics and politics and his books include The Green Economy and Paying for Progress. So you've got very good reasons gathering here as to why to go to a bookshop tomorrow, but we're doing, we're doing well with the output from the team. And on my furthest right is uh, Andy Lester, who is Conservation Director of Arocha, one of our sponsors this evening, <coughs> a Christian charity working in environmental protection and restoration. And those of you that are in congregations that have Arocha publications will probably be very familiar with their magazine as well. So plenty of reading material thus far. Then on my left is well known to you no doubt Bishop James Jones, the former Bishop of Liverpool, and a spokesman for the Church of England on the environment during his lengthy career in the church. He has written extensively on tonight's subject 
and is the author of the book called Jesus and the Earth. And uh, one uh, down from uh, James Jones is Dr. Andrew Lillico, also I'm sure known to you. He's executive director of Europe Economics and is a frequent contributor in the UK and international media on economics and finance. And then on my furthest left is Martin Harper, Conservation Director for the RSPB and the uh, known to you, I'm sure, as the UK's uh, largest nature conservation charity. They used to regularly remind me that they have over a million members, which always makes somebody who's a member of a political party really know their place. So thank you very much, all of you panellists, for being here this evening. So I'm going to start by asking Lord Lawson to speak, and uh, he will be followed by uh, Professor Michael Jacobs. So I'm going to give you, Nigel, uh, about 10 minutes, Max, um, uh, to start. So we look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you very much, Caroline. I will, and hello, everybody. I will do my best to keep within the 10 minutes. It's very difficult, but it's a huge subject. Uh, uh, but I'm delighted that it is uh, being debated. Too often it is not debated. Too often people say this, the issue is closed, there's nothing to debate. In my opinion, there is a lot to debate. Uh, the, uh, uh, what we're talking about now it's not really the environment, because the environment is a whole lot of issues, all of them important, but very different. Uh, we're talking about one specific issue, the issue of global warming. And um, uh, what we're talking about, as Caroline said, was the economics, but it's not just an economic issue. It is also, in my opinion, an ethical issue, and I will uh, try and touch on that. Uh, the, there seem to me to be two basic questions. First of all, how big a problem are we faced with? And secondly, what should we do about it? Uh, as to the first of these questions, uh, I believe there are far worse problems uh, in the world today. Um, if you look at the, what's happening in the Middle East now, if you look at West Africa with the Ebola uh, problem, there are many far more pressing problems than this. Um, the, uh, of course, and the only honest answer to how big a problem is that we don't really know. It is extremely difficult to get to grips with it. But if you uh, look at what the IPCC said, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which I don't always uh, feel is the last word, but nevertheless, it's a serious body and needs to be looked at. And I, I will quote uh, from the, the most recent uh, uh, report, uh, AR5, as is known, in the Working Group on Impacts. And they said, and I'm quoting, estimates for the aggregate economic impact of climate change are relatively small. For most economic sectors, the impact of climate change will be small relative to the impacts of other drivers. End of quotation. And that seemed to me perfectly reasonable. Uh, and what the IPC does is they put the total cost, their estimate, the total cost by 2070, which is well over half a century hence, as somewhere between uh, a tenth of a percent, uh, uh, two tenths of a fifth, 0.2% of global GDP and 2% of world GDP. Uh, these are relatively small figures in the scheme of things. Uh, in fact, I think the IPC tends to exaggerate for two reasons. Principally, it exaggerates the extent of warming that is likely to occur within that time scale. Uh, what is most striking about this century is that there's been no recorded global warming at all, whether you look at the Met Office or any of the other people who uh, do these recordings and these statistics, mainly in the United States, but also, very importantly, the Met Office in this country. And that is leading increasing numbers of scientists to believe that the, uh, the, the <coughs> assumptions about climate sensitivity, that means say, the extent to which carbon dioxide emissions warm the, the uh, Earth, uh, uh, of course there is a greenhouse effect, no doubt about that, but the big question is how big is it? And the climate sensitivity, most climate scientists now, increasing number, believe that uh, it is less than they thought it was. 
but the, the, the models which the IPCC uses have not been adjusted for that. Um, uh, but this pause or hiatus, which the IPCC admits has occurred in uh, warming over this century, is uh, a very important factor. And there's also, to some extent, but I'll come on to that later, uh, I think they underrate the, the likely development of technology in, over this period. However, what I said we don't really know. What we do know, for certain, uh, is that over this period, the world is going to become very, very rich, much richer. People are going to be many, many times as wealthy as they are uh, today. And not, this is an assumption which is, in a sense, built in to their forecast, because what they, or predictions, what they do is they first of all assume how much growth there's going to be. And then on the basis of the growth, their economic growth, they calculate what the emissions are likely to be like. And then on the basis of that, using the sensitivity, which I think is, which I think is exa probably exaggerated, most scientists seem to be coming to all that conclusion, they calculate the, um, the uh, amount of warming. Uh, but people are going to be, uh, by 2070, many, many times richer than they are today, even if you knock off the 0.2% to 2%. Uh, so net, uh, we are going to be uh, much better off, even if we do nothing at all. Uh, that's, I think, some good news. The, on the second question, what do we do about it? The conventional wisdom is that the world needs to decarbonize its energy uh, production totally. Incidentally, you were involved at one time in agriculture. Uh, you know that farm animals uh, produce ethane, <laughs> which is a, a greenhouse gas. And if you're going to uh, remove uh, these uh, greenhouse gases altogether, uh, then it's going to be the end of livestock farming and we're all going to be vegetarians. But anyhow, uh, the, the total decarbonization, which is the conventional answer, uh, is, I think everybody who's really studied knows it's not achievable. Uh, because it needs a binding global agreement, and that is not on. It was tried in 2009 in Copenhagen, and that was when Obama had just become president. He was in his pomp. Uh, uh, and both houses of uh, Congress in the United States were controlled by the Democrats, and he still was not prepared to move on this at all. Uh, then in 2012, uh, when the Kyoto Agreement came to an end, there was a feeling, well, we're going to negotiate a, a, a successor to that, which will be totally global, involve everybody. And I had an argument, public argument, with Oliver Letwin, who said he was sure we would reach this agreement. Uh, and I said, well, look, let's end the argument. We'll have a wager. So we had a wager. It was only 100 pounds, regrettably. Uh, but of course, there was no agreement. And to do him justice, he paid up. Uh, the, uh, uh, but what they did say was, we'll get one by 2015, next year, the end of next year, the Paris meeting. We're not going to. It's not going to happen. But the interesting question is not whether it's going to happen or not, because it's clearly not going to. The interesting question is why is it not going to happen? And the reason it's not going to happen is because China, which is far and away the biggest emitter, bigger even in the United States, is not going to sign up to a global, uh, made it clear, a binding global agreement. They say we're doing this and do that and doing that, but they're not going to sign up to that. India, which is the third biggest, has also said they're not going to, uh, more clearly, the Indians have been slightly more straightforward than the Chinese, they said no way are we going to uh, give up fossil fuels. Uh, and uh, the United States has made it clear, even in Obama's time, let alone now with the Republican Congress, that they're not going to do anything at all uh, if China and India are not going to. So it's not going to happen. And they say, why is this? The Chinese are not stupid. The Indians are not stupid. We need to understand their reason. And their reason is that we use fossil fuels because they are far and away the cheapest source of energy in the world today and will be for the foreseeable future. I'm sure not forever. 
I am sure that we will discover in due course uh, cheaper sources of fuel, but for the moment of the foreseeable future, fossil fuels are far and away the cheapest. And their priority is economic growth. Uh, and um, the cost of going to more expensive uh, sources of energy is immense and would slow down economic growth. And slowing down economic growth for China and India, I mean, it's bad news for us, uh, but it is uh, uh, because it more expensive energy is bad for the poor in this country, but in those countries it is very much worse. They have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in dire poverty. And economic growth is the only way to get them out of poverty. It is the only way to uh, get out of the ills that poverty brings. Uh, malnutrition, disease, premature death. And what uh, we are asking them to do, or they're being asked to do, and which they are quite rightly saying no to, we are not going to uh, go slow uh, and cause hundreds of millions of people unnecessarily to suffer poverty, uh, unnecessarily suffer preventable disease, unnecessarily suffer uh, premature death. So what do we do? Briefly, what we need to do instead is what mankind does all around the globe, because there are hot countries and cold countries in the globe, and what we've always done throughout history is to adapt to whatever nature throws at us. And adaptation has two benefits in particular. One is that warming the planet is not all bad. There are some good consequences. There are others that are bad. But an adaptation means we pocket the benefits while reducing, so far as we can, the harm. And then there is also the, uh, the, the reason uh, is that there are no new problems produced by warming. Uh, people talk about extreme weather events. There are always extreme weather events. There always have been. It's nothing new. Maybe they will become slightly worse. But what we want to do is to make the world, uh, countries of the world more resilient to uh, extreme weather events too cool, not just a little bit extra, which might be caused by warming. The same with health. There are health problems all over the world, malaria and other tropical diseases and so on. Uh, but again, we want to conquer these, not just to focus obsessively on the little bit extra that might be caused uh, by global warming. And I feel, in conclusion, that it is not only crazy to be on the path that the conventional wisdom uh, sets out, but it's profoundly unethical uh, for two reasons. First, what we are doing is expecting the people, asking the people <coughs> who are alive today, not merely ourselves, but our children, and for many of us, our grandchildren, to make great sacrifices in order to benefit those yet unborn future generations, way in the future, who will be, as I said, far better off than, than we are. That seems to me indefensible. But also, the idea that we should say to the Chinese and the Indians and so on, but fortunately they're not going to agree, but uh, that they must endure a greater degree of poverty, a greater degree of uh, preventable disease, and a greater degree of, of premature death, that seems to me to be <coughs> profoundly unethical. And that is why I have taken the, the view more than anything else. That is why the, the, I've taken the view that I did, which I set out in the book, which you very kindly referred to, and I go on uh, occasionally speaking and writing about. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nigel. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, and also for uh, um, trying to keep to time. Uh, just for information, um, agriculture <coughs> is responsible for 17% of global uh, of greenhouse gas emissions and we did look hard at what we could do uh, to reduce it and if you alter the diet of cattle uh, they burp less and that would help <laughs> so, <laughs> there are a few technical solutions that we can bring but thank you very much for that now we'll move to our second panelist so uh, i'd like to invite professor michael jacobs to contribute now thank you very much indeed caroline thank you all of you for coming particularly those of you who thought you were going to hear nick stern um, and still decided to come. There are five people who didn't, clearly. Um, I apologise for not being Nick Stern. It's a cross I have to bear. Um, uh, but I do thank you for coming. Um, 
what we can afford, which is what the question asks, um, is uh, partly about the, its costs, but also about its value. So the question that we're really being asked here is how much do we value what it is that we're being asked to save uh, the planet from, um, and how much will it cost to achieve that? So let's first, if, I, if we can, let's look at the value of a safe or tolerable climate. Um, and I'm happy to accept the invitation from Lord Lawson just to focus on climate change, although the wider environmental questions are, are, are very important, and I hope we can get some of those. And secondly, what are we being, um, uh, what is the cost going to be um, uh, uh, of saving the planet, if that is how we put it? This meeting could not have come at a better time, as um, we've heard um, uh, from my purpose, since the costs um, uh, uh, of unchecked climate change have been set out very clearly in the synthesis report, uh, that is the summary report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, just at the weekend. Um, a remarkable consensus. There's 800 climate scientists from all over the world, almost all climate scientists, um, who have reached a consensus view. And it's a very subtle document, as all their reports are, saying what the probabilities are that they think and which um, positions they have more or less confidence in. So this is not propaganda by any sense. This is a very dispassionate scientific view. And they say that the uh, continuing rise in greenhouse gas emissions will cause long-lasting changes in the climate system, increasing the likelihood of severe, pervasive, and irreversible impacts for people and ecosystems. That's a direct quotation. Um, firstly, they say, let's unpack that a little bit. Firstly, they say these impacts are already occurring. We can see climate change impacts are already occurring. They say that there's a significant um, uh, risk of warming of two degrees by the middle of the century, of four to five degrees by the end of the century, and then more. Those numbers relative to uh, 19th century uh, global average temperatures. These are average global surface temperatures. They then say that these rises are, are likely to lead, and they put different probabilities on different estimates, of climate, uh, climate, uh, climatic patterns which will result in those severe, pervasive and irreversible impacts, including changed rainfall patterns, increased frequency of extreme weather events, rising sea levels, the acidification of the oceans, risks to water supplies, to agricultural fields, and so on. And some of these, they point out, are likely to be irreversible, such as the melting of, uh, of uh, ice sheets in the Arctic and the Antarctic, the release of methane from tundra, and so on. And these changes, they point out, will disrupt the lives and the li livelihoods of uh, likely, and there are probabilities on the different kinds of impacts of hundreds of millions of people, possibly billions. These kinds of temperature rises, if they occur, would be unprecedented in human history. The last time the, the Earth was on average three degrees warmer was three million years ago. That is before human history. We haven't lived in temperatures of that time. So we really need to be very careful about saying these are things that we can simply adapt to in the way that human beings have always adapted to changing, changing climates. There have been changing weather patterns and climates, but nothing on the scale of the possible, likely, and in some cases probable impacts that the scientists are telling us um, would occur. Now, there are clearly still considerable uncertainties about exactly when and where and what impacts will occur, but the scientists are absolutely clear that these risks are the risks that current trends in greenhouse gas emissions, which if left unchecked, uh, are leading to. It seems to me that this is an extraordinary legacy for us to be leaving the generations who will uh, experience this. And in contrast to, um, uh, in, in agreement with Lord Wilson, I think this is absolutely a moral question. This seems to me to be morally unconscionable that we should be placing future generations at these extraordinary risks. Now, Lord Lawson has used two arguments to, um, uh, against this. The first is that future generations will be richer. Um, now, much of the extra wealth that is, um, as exactly as Lord Lawson said, that is uh, assumed in the models is assumed. That is, the models assume the growth and then generate um, uh, uh, the results. Um, but what they do is they assume the growth of GDP. And I think there is a real question as to whether the kinds of impacts which um, uh, the IPCC suggests will, will occur um, can, be, uh, can be regarded as, um, uh, 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 as compatible with the concept of increasing wealth. The costs of, we know the costs of extreme weather events that occur now have huge impacts on peoples and on their welfare now, let alone um, uh, the kinds of much, much larger impacts that are being described. So I think we really do need to unpack the idea that because the models predict 
future economic growth. This means that, uh, that, uh, that this wealth will simply be able to, you will be able with this wealth to buy your way out of these problems. When we say we are richer, we need to be looking at what it is that we need to spend our money on. And we will be spending our money in very different ways to adapt to this. Secondly, Lord Lawson says that we should adapt. That is the core uh, strategy that he proposes. And of course we have to adapt. I note that he doesn't say how much adaptation would cost, and adaptation is not cheap. Adaptation will be very costly. But most importantly, adaptation cannot be the only solution, because as long as we don't mitigate, that is, we don't reduce the emissions going into the atmosphere, this problem is going to get worse and worse. It doesn't end at the end of the century. It doesn't end with the three to four degrees in 2100. It carries on to five or six degrees. And nobody has yet explained how we would adapt to those kinds of temperatures that human beings have never, ever experienced. I do not understand what it means to adapt to the kind of world that is likely to occur under these scenarios. And that is why adaptation is critical, absolutely has to be done, but cannot be the only thing we do, because the problem simply gets on work, get, keeps getting worse. So this is what we're being asked to save the planet from. I personally, I value this pretty highly. And um, uh, the environment is sometimes described as a kind of luxury, something we can buy if we're very rich. Um, it doesn't seem to me that preventing the world reaching this, these kinds of conditions is a luxury uh, at all. But here we get to the problem, as Lord Lawson has said. Um, the issue is, um, these benefits all seem to accru the benefits of saving the planet are preventing these, all seem to accrue to future generations, but it's our generation, the present generation, um, that has to pay for it. And this seems to be some kind of inequity between the present generation and future generations. But that's simply wrong. I have a 13-year-old daughter. In 2050, when, if we do nothing, and frankly, even if we act, we are likely to hit two degrees or more, um, she will be 48. She will be younger than I am now. This is not about future generations. This is about people we know and we love now. This is all about the present generation. But more importantly, and this is where the new evidence has come in, the costs to the present generation are much, much less than Lord Lawson would have us believe. Um, uh, because we now understand the ways in which we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and the technologies which are available to us to doing, for doing so, and they are much cheaper than uh, we used to think um, uh, uh, and that Lord Lawson uh, 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 appears to believe. The IPCC has used the various models, um, uh, has summarised the various models, and they show that to achieve a two-degree uh, uh, to try and limit um, uh, global warming to around two degrees, which is what the international community has said, would cost um, somewhere between 0.04 and 0.14, and the median estimate that they give is 0.06% each year from the expected growth path of between 1.6 and 3% per annum. So we're being asked to pay, according to these models, 0.06% of a growth rate that is likely to be one and a half to three percent on average. That is, by most people's uh, uh, views, I would suggest affordable. But it may, fact, in fact, be an overestimate because the models that do this don't take account of the kind of technological change which has been occurring very rapidly in many of the technologies which we need to decarbonize. So over the last 10 years, the price of solar uh, PV um, uh, modules has fallen 80 to 90 percent. And contrary to the uh, belief that Lord Lawson appears to have, um, uh, renewable energy is not so expensive now. In fact, renewable energy in the form of solar and wind are now winning auctions to get onto grids in places for, from Texas to Brazil without subsidy. The costs are falling dramatically. They need subsidy in most places, but the subsidies are declining very rapidly. Um, and the reason for this is because as we increase the demand for renewable energy, the supply um, uh, expands, the costs reduce. And these cost reductions are occurring throughout uh, the different forms of decarbonisation in energy, in agriculture, um, uh, and so on. So these, these estimates that are given, which are, very, uh, which are relatively low, probably overestimate the future likely costs uh, of this. Moreover, these models don't take into account all the other benefits which accrue if you decarbonise. Seven million people die every year from air pollution. Almost all of that is associated with fossil fuels, both indoor and outdoor air pollution, um, which also cause climate change. So if we can get rid of those fossil fuels, we can reduce them, we will save many, many lives. 
the estimates that are now being done by the World Bank and others of the value of, of the lives lost, of the deaths caused by air pollution, run between, uh, on an average of 4% of GDP in the 15 largest uh, uh, countries. And the other benefits that you get from moving towards a society that uses carbon less, you get less traffic congestion when you're, uh, because you're moving towards cities that rely on public transport. You get better quality of life in those cities because of air quality. You get more energy security because you rely on indigenous renewable resources and so on and so forth. And you also get much stronger environmental protection in forests, um, in oceans and so on that are not damaged in the same way. The recent report of the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, this huge thing, Better Growth, Better Climate, which I was involved in, um, brought together all the new evidence on the economic costs and benefits of acting on climate change and shows that, again, contrary to the view expressed by Lord Lawson, there are absolutely plausible growth paths, growth paths, which bring jobs and poverty reduction in developing countries which are at low cost, or possibly, if you include these wider benefits, um, at net benefit cost. And this evidence has now been gathered not just by this particular report, but by the World Bank, by the OECD, by the IMF. There is an extraordinary growing consensus, not just amongst the scientists on the climate science, but amongst the economists, on the potential for a low-carbon form of growth in developing and developed uh, countries. And this is uh, new, this has occurred over the last five to ten years, and I would urge people to look at this evidence, including this report, to see uh, where this is. This is not to say there are no costs. There absolutely are costs. Jobs will be lost. But this is true of all economic transitions, and the issue facing us is managing that transition fairly so that we move people out, as we always have done in transitions of economic, before, economic transitions before, from the declining sectors, the high-carbon sectors, into the growing ones, the low-carbon sectors. So this, um, and this is the reason why Lord Lawson is wrong on an international agreement. And I will, um, uh, if you like, do a new bet. I think Oliver Letwin cashed out too early. Uh, he's obviously been watching uh, the adverts in, uh, in Sky Sports. Uh, and he cashed out too early. There will be an agreement in 2015. I'm willing to bet on it. Uh, it will have a legally binding component to it um, uh, about the, rule, the rules, in my view. And, uh, uh, and the reason for this is because China is not stupid. China knows that of all the countries in the world, it will suffer the most from climate change, um, and it can see how it can move towards a, a lower carbon path. Last month, I'm just about to finish, Karen, last month, the Chinese Vice Premier told the UN Climate Summit that China would announce a date for the peaking of its emissions uh, very soon. China has started on this path. It is simply not the case that China, as indeed other emerging economies, are not interested in this. They think there is no route to decarbonizing their economy. Because they believe there is a low carb lower carbon growth path, they, um, uh, they, uh, uh, they are prepared to do this. And they are prepared, it seems to me, to go into an agreement on that basis. So the overwhelming evidence is not just that the costs of climate change will be extremely severe, but that the costs of acting on it will be much lower than we previously thought, and this may even give us a form of better growth. So the real question to me is not, can we afford to save the planet, but can we really afford not to? Thank you very much. Um, so uh, we're going to move from economist to economist, but I do need the economist to be economical with the time, please, if you can, otherwise it's not fair to others. So, Andrew, uh, over to you. Okay, so for any, for any um, policy question, and this is a policy question, what one does about uh, climate change, there are a number of responses that policymakers could make relative to whatever would naturally happen in the world as a, re as a result of evolutions of um, uh, scientific developments, of market developments, and culture, and so on. So the four responses you could encourage, accelerate the process, um, you could try to prevent or mitigate it, you could wait, see what happened, and then reverse it, or you could accept that something's going to change, and then you could adapt to it. The message I want to offer you here is that mitigation versus adaptation as a response to climate change is intrinsically odd as an idea and has constituted a 25-year dead end that we should now move on from. So when um, carbon dioxide emissions related to global warming was first studied seriously in the Chani report of 1979, uh, the prediction at that time was that there would be a surface temperature rise of two to three and a half degrees with um, extreme upside up, up, uh, scenarios of four and a half degrees. And that figure, that basic number, has barely changed at all in the 35 years since. 
In fact, Charney also has a discussion of how there's a possibility, in 1979, he has the discussion of the possibility that the speed at which the climate, um, uh, uh, the climate heats up is, might be slower than anticipated in the basic models because of some of the initial rise in temperatures being absorbed by the oceans, by intermediate levels in the oceans. And this, um, so uh, I think it's important in this context to grasp that the basic elements of the scientific debate have all been there these past 35 years. The key question, the evolving question, is not really about the scientific question at all. And that illustrates that we shouldn't think of this as a scientific debate. This is a debate for policymakers and economists about how we respond to the basic message that, that's offered to us. Of course there are uncertainties about the science, of course they're worth de debating, but it's the, there's an essential question about how we respond. Many scientists uh, in, uh, that operate in this area, or at least some of the most vocal ones, appear to offer an idea that, um, that only a scientist should, uh, should have, make any sort of comment on these kind of questions. Nobody should comment outside their own area of authority. Well, if any of you are scientists of that sort in the, uh, in the audience, I would like to say to you, thank you for your contribution. Since we're now onto the policy question and the economics question, I'll take it from here. Um, at first, when the Charney report came out, it was felt obvious, obvious, that the response, the correct response to the kinds of things said, was to adapt. There were a number of reasons why it was thought uh, that, they should, that they, you should, should adapt to such changes if and when they occurred. Um, uh, one would be, of course, that there have been enormous uh, um, human adaptation, uh, adaptation of human organisation over the previous couple of centuries to um, agricultural developments, urbanisation, industrialisation, wars and so on, and this would just be one more of many adaptations that there had been, of, um, far from the largest uh, set of things that we'd have had to have adapted to. A second idea was perhaps that notions of how the world as a whole worked, holistic models, were perhaps thought that was a rather new thing, perhaps a little bit in flux, more perhaps in flux then. Than, than today. Even in the 1960s, their first, was the first time people came across ideas like continental drift, for example. But a third thing, which is really quite important, is that it was felt obvious, I would say, in 1979, that in an age of superpower standoff and so on, the idea that you could achieve anything material on things that would affect the, glo the globe as a whole, which would require a global agreement to implement, a global agreement sustained over centuries, was just absurd. It just wasn't going to happen. So people felt that it was obvious that wasn't even a candidate. It didn't sit in the things that were feasible, regardless of what the merits of doing it might otherwise be. During the 1980s, however, there were two big developments that I think led us down a bit of a blind alley here. We had enormous success with international agreements on sulfur emissions, reducing acid rain, and on chlorofluorocarbon emissions, uh, addressing the, um, the hole in the ozone layer, for, for those of you who remember that. And by the, uh, by the late 1980s, early 1990s, the idea of responding to um, climate uh, developments with international agreements seemed much more plausible, it seemed much more natural. I would also um, uh, 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 venture to add that maybe a savvy operator like Mrs Thatcher, who was an early mover in this kind of thing, might have seen the possibility that um, climate change could be a bit of a Trojan horse of things like more nuclear power, right? that, it, that there might be desirable side consequences of that as well. This fact, this combination of um, events in the 1980s where things went that way, changed the political atmosphere, the sense of what was feasible. So that addressed one of my three elements. It didn't, of course, in the first instance, change what the economics about what is best. No, the reality was that long after um, things, were things uh, changed as to what the politicians regarded as feasible and that they started to press, the economists, by and large, continued to think that adaptation is just obviously, obviously, the thing that you should do in most economics models. And, and it still continues to be the case. Even, so up until the Stern Review, that was really, it wasn't until the Stern Review that the economics, as it were, caught up with the politics. Um, but even after the Stern Review, many economists would continue to regard climate change mitigation policies as overwhelmingly politically driven. So you have assessments, even the government's own assessments in the UK, the renewables obligation, for example, in the UK, the cost-benefit analysis found that the costs of the policy were 17 times the assessed benefits. Now, it may be that things have moved on and that that wasn't a right number and so on, but it's just the context to understand that these are politically driven ideas which um, the economists have, by and large, been sceptical about all of the time. Um, even measures that did have a positive cost-benefit ratio, like the Climate Change Act, depended upon global agreement, which just hasn't been forthcoming. We could debate about the economics, but the reality, I think, is that's not really my purpose to debate about the economics of uh, the mitigation versus um, adaptation. I want to convey to you that mitigation is just one battered corpse of a horse that we should start kicking. 
We've spent 25 years, even if we got any sort of further agreement now, the most anybody imagines we would do would be to um, uh, cause a very small proportion of the amount of the uh, uh, global warming that's anticipated to occur, not to occur. We're not talking about really preventing things in any very deep sense. We're talking about cutting down on a little bit of it. Now, there are those who say, well, to be sure, of course, of course we've got to adapt. The strategy we should ad adopt is to mitigate as much as we possibly can, and then we'll have to adapt to the rest. And I think that that's just wrong. First of all, it's wrong as a way of thinking about things, because there's not the slightest reason to think that global warming is that much more um, different qualitatively more, uh, it's not some exceptional idea relative to many other problems that humanity faces. It doesn't, it isn't much more important than combating childhood diseases in developing countries, teaching women to read, empowering them to engage in commercial life, combating the diseases of ageing in the West. Who knows, erectile dysfunction. I mean, global warming isn't going to destroy the earth. Nobody suggests that. No mainstream model suggests that global warming is going to destroy the earth. We aren't in a desperate race against time to do as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and then we'll have to work out what to do with the rest later. That's just not the kind of situation we're in. The situation we are in is one of maybe there are some small things that it's feasible to try at, um, and less feasible to try. And amongst the things which are feasible to try, there are those that are more beneficial and those that are less beneficial. The second point I would say is that mitigating is uh, as much as possible is unlikely to be a good strategy for the UK in a context in which we're acting largely alone. If we, because we're a small proportion of um, the uh, global emissions, the, it's, we're not in a cooperative situation. In many situations in life, you have to understand that a strategy which might be best if we all did it together is going to be unlikely for me to pursue uh, if you don't carry on it the same way. And so we have to accept our, um, we have to be, have a certain humility here. The third thing that I would say is that mitigation as an overarching strategy is straightforwardly in conflict with adaptation. The basic reason for that is we will adapt best if we are richer, if we continue to grow. The faster we grow, the richer we will be, the better we're able to adapt. Wealthy people adapt to things better. By contrast, we will mitigate more if we grow less. And there, that's a really fundamental contrast between those two points. We mitigate better if we grow slower, emissions grow slower, and so on. That's also, incidentally, a point to bear in mind about the, uh, the notion that uh, we, we may not get the growth. Of course, if we don't get the growth in these models, we won't get anything like the emissions in these models either. Um, to advocate adapting to climate change is not to deny the science in some sense. It might be the result of taking a different assessment of the uh, cost-benefits. But by and large, it's a matter, I think, of embracing the inevitable. Mitigation just ain't going to happen. Once we grasp that, once we really embrace it, I think we should also see that adaptation has a number of key advantages. We can pursue it locally. You don't need a global agreement to build some extra flood defences. You can just go and do it. It's also, it's flexible to scientific developments. I mean, we might, for example, think that a certain level of mitigation was going to be effective. And then subsequently, in a decade or so's time, we find that that's an utterly ineffective amount and we'd have needed to have done five times as much, but by then it's too late. So adaptation, in the case of adaptation, we respond to things as they turn up. It's flexible to technological developments. So, um, uh, of course, partly that's the point that we um, de develop in the ways that we adapt, but it also might be that adaptation, the natural evolution of the market, produces its own level of mitigation, naturally. We tend to reduce emissions, if they're right, and some of the sources of energy are much cheaper in the, in the future, then we'll switch to those anyway, and then there won't be the emissions problem over the long term. It's also, I'm just coming to, to an end, it's, um, it's flexible to evolving tastes. So we look at the world of a four degree temperature rise, and we think that that looks like a disaster. But folk in the uh, mid and middle of the 18th century might have looked at the, uh, the, uh, the environmental developments of the next two centuries and thought they looked like a disaster. We look back and we say, well, no, suppose that it's true that we've already got climate change causing issues. And we say, well, Tuvalu sinks beneath the waves, there's even more flooding than usual in Bangladesh, and in exchange we get pharmaceutical medicine, TV, Reeboks, McDonald's, air travel, computer, blogs, all the other apparatus of modern life. Who's to say that in two centuries' time, um, perhaps our, great, our great-grandchildren will be sitting in their climate-controlled domes on Europa and uh, thinking, well, the deal was this. London flooded, the Mississippi overflowed even more than usual, and in exchange we got the cure for cancer, interplanetary travel, a life expectancy of 200, eyelid head of displays, telepathy, and all the other apparatus of modern life. That was a no-brainer. The point about understanding that people in the future might have a different perspective of us is important, and that also comes to the point that the costs of adaptation are borne by the much richer folk in the future. They're all going to be richer than us. 
Why should I be the one that pays for their, uh, for, um, their affluence? So overall, my message is this. Mitigating climate change, which initially seemed plausible, suddenly uh, which, uh, sorry, initially seemed utterly implausible, suddenly appeared plausible for a brief moment in the 1980s and 1990s. But that was probably always an illusion, part of an end of history mentality at the time. And having to fail to mitigate these past 25 years, we should now accept that adaptation is inevitable. Thank you very much, Andrew, uh, indeed, and thank you for trying to stick to time. And I should explain that the carefully arranged celestial choir in the background uh, is by chance. It happens to be that the military wives choir are performing in the atrium of Portcullis House, which does provide a certain soothing background to this evening's deliberations. And so uh, we come to James Jones, and uh, James, you've got, you've got an interesting opportunity here, um, situated between these quite strongly opposing... Views. You're quite used to reconciliation, so no pressure. Thank you very much, Caroline. It's very good to see you episcopally adorned this evening. <laughs> this is a sign of things to come in the Church of England. Uh, the question is, can we afford to save the planet? The answer is, without the planet, we can't afford anything, because the planet is our only capital. Human ingenuity is capable of endless possibilities, but the Earth our only other resource is not a limitless larder. The market that Andrew rightly refers to is one of the oldest forms of democracy, where people express their values and their choices. In a recent interview in The Spectator, Vaclav Klaus, the former Czech president, said he believed in a market without adjectives. But for the market to work for the common good, or to use Lord Lawson's terminology, for the market to work ethically, good education is a prerequisite. Therefore, a modern example is tobacco, where, contrary to Andrew's dismissal of science, scientific information shaped people's values and choices and affected the market for our common good. So in our own time, the scientific information which I've seen for myself in the Proudman Laboratory in Liverpool, the Oceanographic Institute, the change in climate, the warming of the oceans, the melting of the ice caps, the rising of the sea levels, the scientific information that brings us this is beginning to shape our values and our choices. When Caroline was Secretary of State for DEFRA, she invited me to chair the independent panel on the future of forestry. And one of the first things we did was go around the country visiting various sites, forests. And I remember going to the Forest of Dean and being taken to a vantage point. And as I was singing the praises of nature, the local forester said, excuse me, Bishop, that's not a natural landscape that you're looking at. That's a political landscape. Because those oaks were planted to build ships for the British Navy. And just as that landscape revealed the values of that day, so our landscape, both nationally and internationally, reveals our values. The best example for us tonight is just a few yards from here, the River Thames. For over 30 years, London has been protected from the changing climate and rising sea levels by the Thames barrier. It was raised four times in the 1980s, 35 times in the 1990s, and over 80 times since the turn of the millennium. I've often thought that if the City of London and the Palace of Westminster had been flooded as many times as they were now raising the Thames barrier, there'd be more urgent action both in the City and in Parliament to save the planet. Sadly, to talk about the relationship between adaptation and mitigation, which Andrew was doing, there's an example of how successful adaptation can take away the urgency, the necessity, of mitigation. The rising sea levels are already changing the map of the world and will change the map of this island nation if we do not act urgently to address the reality of the changing climate. Furthermore, with so many of our nuclear power stations situated on the coast, we need a full assessment of the impact of projected sea level rise 
on both our energy supply and our safety, which could have a massive and detrimental impact on the economy. The scientific information must inform our values and our choices and the market if we are to survive and to save the planet. For many, including myself, those values and choices are informed by a sense of justice and a sense of accountability to the Creator. I love the definition of justice offered by a 4th century North African Christian apologist called Lactantius. He says, The whole point of justice consists precisely in our providing for others through humanity what we provide for our own family through affection. One of the parables of Jesus is about a widow begging a biased judge to grant her justice. 2,000 years on, there are those who are widowed and orphaned by climate change who also plead for justice. The injustice is this, that those at the moment most affected by climate change are far from the levers of power. And those who do have the power do not yet show the will to act urgently. The climate injustice in Ethiopia, Bangladesh, on average a person puts into the atmosphere less than 1% of a tonne of carbon. In Europe it's about 10 tonnes per person. In America about 25 tonnes per person. Therein lies the injustice. Seems to me that we have to act on four levels. The personal, the parochial, the political and the planetary. On the personal level we must exercise our values and our choices as customers and as citizens. On the parochial level we must work together in local communities. On a political level we must work towards some agreement in 2015. And on a planetary level we all know that we can't do anything without China and America agreeing. But we must press them hard and ourselves to find some global agreement if we are to answer the question, save the planet. Thank you very much indeed. Very, very much. Very economical with your time. Really do appreciate that. Now, um, we've, we've invited the two sponsors to, to, to speak to us, but they're very kindly going to split the time for one speaker so that we don't cut short on, on Q&A. So first of all, I'm going to invite Martin Harper to speak. Great. Thanks very much. Um, I've been having a great time listening to this debate, and I'm just lucky that I've got a few words to offer as well, but I hope you have a chance as well. I'll, I'll try and be brief. Um, I am actually unapologetically going to broaden the debate a bit to talk about the other millions of species on which we share this planet. I will talk about nature, because I think it gives us a different perspective on the trajectory that we're on. I mean, in many ways, I mean, Homo sapiens, our species, is an extraordinary species. Um, we've heard about this um, you know, um, extraordinary growth in prosperity that I've seen in, in my lifetime, and I think that um, GDP has soared in the 44 years I've been on this planet. Uh, and yes, we do face serious economic problems today in terms of debt, in terms of uh, major inequalities and un unemployment. But the fact remains absolutely the case that we've made real progress in pulling people out of poverty, improving health, education and global living standards. And I hope that we can carry on doing so. Yet it is also clear that this growth has come at a cost. And indeed, some of the costs has already been described in terms of climate impacts on the planet. But I want to talk about the impacts on nature, because every month, it seems to me, we hear new um, frightening um, examples of the scale and nature of the impact of our species on the other species which we inhabit this planet. Um, WWF, the chief executives here this evening, um, they produced a report recently that suggested that wildlife populations on this planet had halved in my lifetime. Uh, the RSPB... Okay, let me look. 
can I continue? Um, RSPB produced a report um, just this week, which perhaps you will criticise as well, which suggested that there were 421 million less birds today than there were 30 years ago. And 25 organisations, including all the main scientific organisations in this country, produced a report in the UK which depicted declines in wildlife of 60% over the last 40 years and one in 10 species are at risk of extinction. These are the sort of reports that are coming through, giving an indication of the scale of loss. Now, we know why the losses are taking place. Um, we've called them the four horsemen of the ecological apocalypse. Habitat destruction, invasive non-native species, pollution, uh, and over-exploitation. But the drivers of those threats are growing population, consuming more, and indeed uh, a failure for us to decouple economic growth from environmental harm. So I would argue that our extraordinary species has its work cut out if we are trying to avoid, if we are going to avoid passing on the natural environment into, in, into the next generation in a massively depleted state. Now, the good news is that not just on climate, but the global community, conservation community is trying to get its act together to come up with a plan of action. And the chairman today um, was, um, was the UK representative who signed up to a global deal in 2010 to try and come up with a roadmap of saving nature by 2020. And we also know, a bit like on climate, what the costs might be of trying to take action to reduce extinction risks or indeed to save the most important places for wildlife on this planet. About um, 80 billion or so a year. Now that, a bit like the debate about climate impact, is relatively small beer. We're talking about a global economy of about $70 trillion. So to deliver the plan, we need political will. But as Michael says, it is essentially a question of priorities uh, and, as, as, as James says, a, a question of choices. So the question we have to ask, is nature worth saving? Well, there's a growing body of evidence, and there was an equivalent report to one um, issued by Nick Stern, which was around the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity, and they came up with some really big figures about the contribution that nature gives us as humans, getting into sort of the tens of trillions. Um, now, whether that figure's right or not, to say it's not necessarily um, important, but what we do know um, in the UK, as the Secretary of State for the Environment said yesterday, the contribution of pollination in this country alone is worth something like £414 million a year. Now, we could try and replace some of those services that nature provides us, but let me tell you that hand, um, pollinating crops by hand is quite an expensive exercise. It might lead to something like £1,500 million a year. Amazing people are actually costing these things out. Um, but if you're not convinced by these economic arguments, um, I would argue that nature matters in other ways. Um, and why, why is it that despite this seeming inexorable growth um, in prosperity, a number of studies have shown that we, in this country, are grumpier than we were a few decades ago? Now, we all know that there are so many things that enrich our lives, and I would argue that nature does as well. And I feel sad that um, my children, other children today, have home ranges 90% less than they used to have when I was growing up. And I feel angry that if we carry on this trajectory, my children will not be um, coexisting on this planet with the other millions of species at the population levels um, that we, we want them to be. And to me, this matters. Yes, but because we're an extraordinary species, I, I'm with Michael here. I think we can find a way through this, not just in terms of climate, but also in terms of finding a way to meet human needs and at the same time as nature needs. We know how to farm profitably without causing harm to wildlife. We know how to build infrastructure without um, causing harm to the most important places. We know how to generate clean electricity without causing pollution and without causing harm to wildlife. And we also know that action to protect natural spaces can be good for climate, could be people. The tropical forest story, the mangrove story, and the coastal protection story. It makes economic and political sense to act now. And it makes sense for my, Michael's, everyone else's children's future. But my last point is that, and I don't think this is a policy point, it's just where I am in my head at the moment, is that one of the biggest challenges we're going to have to overcome it's not necessarily the economic issues. It's going to be the issues of human indifference, carelessness, and greed. And arguably, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges in the next 25 years. And if I may, I want to end with a verse from a hymn that my mum sent me before tonight's event. Uh, it feels apt, so forgive me for reading it rather than singing. It's called Beauty from Brokenness by Graham Kendrick. And it seems to sum up um, the challenge that we face. Rest for the ravaged earth, oceans and streams plundered and poisoned. Our future, our dreams. Lord, end our madness, carelessness and greed. Make us content with the things that we need. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Martin. We could have almost put that over to the military choir, couldn't we? They want an encore, we'll suggest it. Right, and to our, to our last members now, before we go to discussions. So, Andy, over to you. One of my favourite hymns, Martin. Thank you. Can't afford to save the planet. It was you who got us in this mess in the first place. And this is what the head of the Kenyan Wildlife Service said to me a few months ago, citing the fact that the rainy season was not happening at the same time of year as it used to, that species were no longer migrating, that used to migrate, that they were unable to produce the same food that they used to be able to produce, and that their primary palm was dying at a phenomenal rate that they said that within five years it would no longer exist and that was due to water stress and water shortage which he said was climate change and that he put the blame firmly and squarely with us in the developed west. Now, I'm not going to blind you with additional facts and figures because they can be twisted in any number of directions to suit the audience and for every fact on climate in one direction it's not too difficult to come out with something that refutes the fact in another direction. But we do have a very significant problem. As a charity, as we travel around the UK meeting people who are keen to do the right thing, there is one overwhelming emotion that pervades most of our society, and that is a real sense of hopelessness. Why is it that fewer people like watching our wildlife films, even those narrated by our famous David Attenborough? It's primarily because we all know that the last 10 minutes will be devoted to the doom and the gloom, rather than a sense of empowering people to act. It simply leaves people feeling paralyzed. Somewhere between fear and real despair. The net result is that we're living in a society that is increasingly switching off to bad news. Not necessarily because they don't believe it, because they feel that they can't cope with it, they can't deal with it, and they can't contribute to changing it. And I believe that there are two primary underlying truths that reinforce this mindset. The first is the conservation movement itself, and this was a conversation I was having with Nigel at the beginning. It's lost direction to a great extent. It doesn't speak with one voice. It doesn't carry a single message. It doesn't have hope and inspiration at its heart. Yes, it tries to engage children with education programs, older people with talks and walks, and the very young with opportunities to volunteer and get their hands dirty. But the bottom line is it's often very formulaic. It's often buried in red tape. It attempts too hard to be relevant against some very disturbing and confusing data. We have to give it an A for effort, but at best a C for achievement. And secondly, there's the business-as-usual camp, that making money, hanging on to short-term financial gain, are the total and entire motivators for some in the financial sector, some in the business sector, some in the utility sector, producing cheaper, faster, and on larger and larger scales. And woe betide those who challenge the status quo. They are simply dismissed as nimbys, or as Owen rather aptly put it, the Green Blob Brigade. A bunch of neo-socialist eco-nuts with no sense of reality and no sense of the incredible power of technology to fix most of our, our ills. The business as usual folks, in my mind, get at best a C for effort and a D for achievement. So into this heady mix, and we've, I think we've picked it up in the debate so far, there are those with a passion for the environment and a passion for economics who do realise that zero growth is literally a non-starter, but that the days of runaway capitalism are equally ludicrous. There are people out there who want to rewire the macroeconomic state, and this is with great respect to Andrew, to make it truly sustainable and truly resistant to short-term market shocks. A growing number in the conservation sector, the faith sector, the aid sector, the justice sector and the broader business sector have slowly begun to join the dots and start to work together to bring about real change. So somehow we've got to reconnect the businessman, the teacher, the 16-year-old out of a job, the parent, the grandfather, the drug addict, to the incredible world that I believe God made. The only way to bring inspiration is to meet people where they are at, 
spend time with them, find solutions that fit their problems, tackle their hurts and their fears, that support not only their personal development but also the future development of the planet. This has to be through a creative mix of both the top-down and bottom-up solutions. So the question was, can we afford to save the planet? And I would argue that that's the wrong question. It should be, how can we afford to save the planet? This is about saving not just nature, but the entire system in which we work, we live and we dream. As one US leader said to me last week, imagine a boat. In the boat you have the banking system, you have our national healthcare system, you have poverty alleviation and reduction, education, social justice, job creation, gender rights, equality issues, faith and religion. But there is a problem. Very slowly, the boat you're in is slowly, slowly sinking. In order to fix the leak, there is the need for the teachers to explain how it can be fixed. The bankers to provide the financing, the health team to prevent illness and accident to the workforce, the faith community to inspire and give hope, which Bishop James Jones has mentioned. The gender rights movement to ensure a message that is inclusive and balanced. But the whole of which climate change is part has got to be fixed. Without the money, it won't happen. Without the knowledge, it won't happen. And without the hope and the inspiration, it absolutely won't happen. So instead of bickering about climate statistics, we've got a unique opportunity to work together. And this is my olive branch to Lord Lawson. And save far more than nature. Because the battle is not about saving nature, it's about saving the very future of our children and our children's children, one in which we will still see gorillas and tigers and rainforests, bees and clean seas, but together we'll also have long-term economic growth, we will have food for all, and a deep appreciation for the planet for which we've been entrusted to. And I want to end with just a short practical example uh, one of the projects that we are supporting is a project near Sheffield. It's called the Leebrook Valley Project, and it was the vision of one man. And that one man over the last 10 years had pulled together a whole range of organisations to transform a piece of wasteland that was used for drug dealing, graffiti and waste into one of the most beautiful wildlife-focused parks in central northern England. And the groups that involved included key land property developers, a major uh, property portfolio organisation, REN, the landfill company, Yorkshire Water, a utilities firm, uh, North East Derbyshire District Council, regional government, together with three local groups, four faith groups from different backgrounds. And the message is, we can do it, but we've got to do it together. Thank you very much, Andy. Right, so we've arrived at uh, discussion time now. And